Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, this is Paul Axton, and in uh, this conversation, I want to continue my discussion of salvation from radical evil. And of course, what we're doing here in depicting a radical evil is not to in some way affirm the reality of this or to affirm it's true, but to suggest that this is precisely the lie or the deception, that in that sense, it's a reality. In other words, it captures people's lives and it defines the, the way that people understand themselves in the world. And so my point in the previous lecture in tracing radical evil and privation, it was not as an intellectual exercise. You know, that's the, usually the way that we encounter this is, well, one uh, pit two theories of evil. My point here is not to say which of these theories is the case. The point is to depict the deep grammar of what Christ delivers from and what he delivers us to. And so radical evil, the notion that there is some ontological ground other than God, it's not simply an interesting error. My point is that it is the root of all that has gone wrong. And to say that radical evil is mistaken or wrong is to miss the point that this is the error which constitutes uh, human destruction. So sin and evil are not separate categories in this understanding, and usually, as I described it before, they are separated out. You know, we have sin, and that's missing the mark, and all that's equated with, in some way, a failure, sometimes depicted as a failure to meet the law. And that, then, is not connected to what is often called the problem of evil. And what I'm saying is that these are not separate categories in this understanding, but the two are conjoined in what we'll call radical evil. It is the way in which the individual is constituted, but it's also a force that's, uh, through humans, it's unleashed in the world. The point is not whether it's the truth or not. No, it's a lie. But it is an effective lie, a lie that orders the human world. So if we think of the fall of man as the engineering of fin finitude, as if it is its own ground. That's what Paul, I think, is describing. That's what Genesis is describing. The displacement of God is literally then the place, you know, in terms of ethics, that man will become the arbiter of his own ethics. But in a real experiential sense, that man will become the ground of his own finite being, making, you know, what is ontologically groundless the infinite ground. And whether he does this, you know, I don't think we're necessarily talking about a conscious process, but as in Freudian psychoanalysis, I think in Paul, that what is being described is a move that we make not fully aware. In fact, there is a sense in which the unconscious is key in the move. But the idea is that taking an idol, Paul says the idol is nothing, and you make this nothing an absolute something. And this gets at the deep psychology of the fallen individual. In Zizek's reading of, and Zizek's following Lacan and their reading of Paul, they're interpreting the law of sin and death as a picture of the subject of living under the control of the death drive. And so we can think of the death drive as simply the power 
that is unleashed of nothing made something. And this is a a real experience that we all have, that shame and the negative emotions rooted in shame become a, a real power in a life, not a power for anything positive. The idea is that the, the problem is not our finitude, but our problem is to take this finitude as if it was an end reality. I think this is the difference. This is the distinction I would make. Privation theory may, in fact, be a perfectly legitimate explanation of the reality, but of course we don't have access to this reality, and that's the very way that, that evil functions, is not in and through the reality, but in some way a displacement of that reality. You know, the idea that Adam becomes the arbiter of his own ethics, there's a displacement of God, and to make this finite thing, this bounded thing, and to treat it as if it is boundless, to treat something that is in fact not self-governing as if it can be self-governing, since Adam's choice was for the illusion of a finite autonomy of the will, that is to say for the idea of a groundless free choice between good and evil as expressing the very essence of freedom. In other words, what is Adam's problem? It's to say that God has been displaced. Adam's problem is loss of the vision of God and his election of physical death and incapacity as a first-order reality. That becomes his reality. And this death and incapacity, or the power to kill and incapacitate, they're not an exposure of finitude, but are taken as an infinite power, a tapping into ultimate reality. This is the psychoanalytic point that the real, the drive, the drive for death, is then the defining reality of this in this human situation. The, the way that radical evil, you know, radical evil here, we're thinking of it is to take nothing and make it an absolute something, that in itself is, is already evil. That's already a, a displacement of God for nothing. That is, we're describing a privation. But to live inside of that is to take this and to build a world, a construct upon it. I believe that's what Paul is describing, but that's what uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis is describing, that in the Zizakian registers, you know, that following Lacan, he equates the law, and this is primarily what I'll talk about today, he equates the law with the symbolic, and this symbolic order, you know, and what we mean, the world of speech, of language, is taken as an infinite order or a reified order as a reality unto itself. And here I'll, I'll illustrate this through the, uh, if you think of the studies of the brain, you know, which presume in bicameral studies the idea that the left brain is in primitive man detached from the right brain. And that as a result of that, people hearing the voice in the left side of the brain, they often took as the voice of God or the gods. Now, whether any of this is true, whether these studies are correct or incorrect, the theory of the bicameral mind, you know, that uh, projected bicameralism into about 2000 B.C., and then, then there's a break from the bicameral mind. I'm really not concerned whether any of that's true, but I think it's illustrative of what 
Paul is talking about, I think it's illustrative of Lacanian theory, and that is that it illustrates our brains or our systems of thought will tend to reify language. And so this idea that the brain is separated and that the cognitive functions were divided between one part of the brain, which is, it appears anyway, to be the speaking part of the brain, and the second part, which listens to the brain. This is the basic theory in the bicameral mind, that the brain was depicted then as itself setting up a kind of dialectic. Julian Jaynes coined the term and presented the idea in uh, his book, The Origins of Consciousness. Maybe it is, you know, maybe this is the origin of a form of consciousness. Now, whether this is a biological fact about human beings or a necessary biological fact, I don't know that. But this bicameral mentality, it does, in fact, seem to be ubiquitous, and that's sort of Jane's point. But maybe we could just use it as a metaphor to describe a mental state in which experiences and memories are, in fact, created on the right side of the brain because in some way they've been transmitted from the other side of the brain. Jane depicts auditory, you know, hallucinations. The idea that these dreams that we encounter in primitive religions are actually just a functioning of the brain. It's not that the two halves of the bicameral brain were completely cut off from each other, but the bicameral mind was experienced as a, a non-conscious mental element. That is, that one was not aware that their own mind was generating the experiences that were occurring, and they were experiencing it as a kind of auditory, verbal hallucination. And so, according to James, you know, ancient people in the bicameral state of mind, they really would have experienced the world in a, in a very different way, maybe like somebody today that has schizophrenia. Rather than making conscious evaluations in situations, the person would hallucinate a voice of God giving advice or commands. And we, hear, we see this in schizophrenics that one's own thought processes are taken as a voice from somewhere else. In schizophrenics, we often encounter command hallucinations that direct the behavior of those afflicted. I, I can talk of personal experience of, of people I've known that have been commanded, oh, go kill someone. The voice, then, is connected to a whole system, that it's very often that the necessity of killing is in fact divine, it's seen as a transgression, but it's a transgression. You know, I have to do this, I have to kill this person in order to be saved. That is that Paul's description, shall we sin that grace may abound, or uh, is the law sin? Paul is describing a perversion, but what, what we can find in schizophrenics, the mentally ill, is that that perversion literally describes their disease. Jane says that this would have been the state of every brain or every mind. He cites cases, you know, like Homer's Iliad. There was a lack of self-awareness. There was a lack of what we, you know, would characterize as human consciousness or reflexivity, as most people experience it today. 
and he's claiming that you can actually trace this in not only culture but in the written religions that, uh, or uh, myths that we have. And so the bicameral individual was guided by these mental commands that they thought were issued by external gods, commands which recorded in the, the myths and legends. So this is exemplified in the commands given to characters in the ancient epics, like the Homer in, in the Iliad, but also the very muses of Greek mythology, you know, which sang the poems. Uh, according to Jains, the ancients literally heard muses as the direct source of their music and poetry. And so he, Jaynes, of course, would read not only the Iliad, he would read the Old Testament or portions of the Old Testament as still giving evidence then of a bicameral mind. You know, books like Amos, the older portions of the Old Testament or in the book of Samuel. And that you can almost witness the development of a different mentality, of a self-reflexive mentality in books like Ecclesiastes. And so there is a shift, is what he's claiming. Now, whether this is the case, I think we can certainly trace a shift in later Christian understanding in which we encounter the works of someone like Augustine, who is going to do a kind of a deep reflection on his own mental states, that, as far as I'm aware, that you, you just don't encounter this sort of reflexivity that uh, will give rise then to a, a different form of autobiography. This form of autobiography, and if you trace down the modern novel, it actually goes back then to this capacity for reflection. Now, whether the literature just hadn't developed or whether the mind hadn't been developed, I don't know, but Jaynes is saying that the literature is reflective of the mind. And so in ancient times, he notes that the gods were more numerous and they were much more anthropomorphic. This, he says, was because each bicameral person had their own god, which is a kind of interesting depiction, you know, if you think of the generation of Noah. There's no real recorded religion. There's no religion until, or idolatrous religion. There is the religion of Yahweh, but uh, we're not quite sure how that functioned. But it seemed that every man then had his religion. That's the depiction. Uh, they, they were sociopaths, of course. They were killers. That pathology then may have been a, a real depiction or a real problem connected maybe with their understanding of the, the language in their heads, that they may have taken literally their own voice in their heads as God. He notes, and you can see this in ancient societies, that the dead were treated as though they were still alive. This is you know, ancestor worship, many people believe, is the original various forms of ancestor worship. The dead are seated, they're dressed, they're fed. In Japan, you, know, you still bring the dead food. Uh, in some, you can find cultures where they'll prop the dead up, maybe even give them a cigarette. As if the ancestor or the dead bodies were presumed to still be living. And maybe, Jane's point is, that the, you get auditory hallucinations that would assign these voices to the dead. And so you would have groups of people, villages of a hundred people or more, and they would form, this would form the core of their religion, this ancestor worship probably is the underlying religion, 
in places like Egypt that we can see evidence of it in the Old Testament. Jane's point is that these voices came from the brain. Now I'm saying all this simply to illustrate whether this is true or to the degree that it's true, that the problem that Paul is describing, the problem that we encounter in the understanding of the law is to in fact reify this voice, reify human language as a modern, you know, as a schizophrenic would do today. And we really, you know, this is the way that Freud will read uh, the human diseases. He, he sees them as a kind of leftover from the, the situation that it, it points to the universal situation. And neurosis that is aggravated in some individuals points to the neurotic state of all humans. We could do the same thing with schizophrenia, that it's a vestige of humanity's earlier bicameral state. Evidence shows that many schizophrenics, they don't just hear random voices, but they experience command hallucinations. You know, a, a voice having a conversation with you might not be problematic, but the voice taken to be God and giving you a command and to commit certain acts, and very often these acts are, in fact, ultimate transgressions, and this I'll come back to, but the point is that there is a pattern here in the sickness, shall we sin, grace may abound, you know, there is a transgressive understanding of the way in which we would treat the law that describes, then, this perverse relationship to the law the divination, the prayer, the oracles that arose in the period, you know, that we might begin to see the bicameral mind beginning to break down. But some individuals then might still have this mind and others then maybe they would see it as a kind of loss to no longer hear the voice of the gods. And so they would turn to those who are prophesying because they still have access to the gods. And those who continued prophesying, maybe they were sometimes feared. They were kind of leftovers of the, the bicameral mind, maybe schizophrenia, mental illness, uh, hallucinations, present in patients, you know, that have diseases or in patients with split brain syndrome. Maybe this reflects then this previous state. But the point is the law has become an end in itself, that people worship the symbolic order. And this is Zizek's point in the subject, is a subject determined by his relationship to the law. In Paul, the fallen subject is one determined by the relationship to the law. The notion of perversion, then, is to simply say that one doesn't question this relationship, that one completely abides by it. In Hysteria, you know, and this is Freud's first patients were hysterics, but Paul may be, and hysteria is not a derogative, it's the idea of beginning to question this relationship. That's the thing that Paul may be doing, Zizek says in Romans 7. The original question, you know, Paul raises, uh, is the law sin? You equate law and sin, and then he's going to question it. Lacan says, is the law the thing? What he's describing here is the reification of the law. That is, you're taking a finitude, a finite thing, and you're making it absolute. In this case, the structure of the symbolic, or as Lacan will take this passage and paraphrase it, he says, is the law the thing? 
Certainly not, yet I can only know the thing by means of the law. The point being that in Lacanian, a Lacanian reading of Paul, the picture is that the law is then representative of a kind of absolute. The law then, which gives rise to forbidden desire, in spite of the life that it seems to offer, and of course that's the idea there in Romans, that, or in, in the Old Testament, that people thought that there was life in the law. But Paul says, no, that this is sin's deception, sin deceived me, and this then produces death. It, it takes a finite object, it absolutizes it, and this then is the very source in, of the human structure that Lacan is going to trace out and that Paul is tracing out. Paul and Lacan and Freud, they're all going to use the ego or the ego. It is then that structure, the pursuit of an object, which is itself, you know, is the ego an actual thing, an actually existing thing that one can pursue? No, it is on the order of an idol. It's on the order of something that is reified. And this then sets up the struggle, a kind of agonistic struggle in which the self is split against the self, that Paul is going to call the law of sin and death. And so the structuring principle of the subject is controlled then by this understanding that we can call radical evil, we can call it the orientation to death. It's a primordial deception that gives rise then to a destructive drive. And this then describes Paul's interpretation of the law as a law of sin and death. It always becomes that. It really doesn't matter what law we're talking about. And this is a picture of the subject. And remember that for Lacan, the law equals the symbolic and the thing represents the real. That is, do you in some way tap in? Here is the you know, understanding that the real here, not a reality in some sort of scientific sense, but the real in terms of the ultimate reality for humans, this nothingness, this death. And Lacan is really saying, is the symbolic the real? Is it in the symbolic that we capture ultimate reality that is in fact the power of death? Paul will answer, certainly not. And Lacan will answer, certainly not. You know, to confuse or to fuse law and sin is to fuse the desire of the symbolic order with the desire for death. All of this under the lie that death is the means of attaining life. Zizek concludes that 7, Romans 7, 7, 14, is a undoing of this perverse understanding. What I would say is that may be true. It is already a questioning. It's a hysteria in regard to the law. But it's not, of course, a full-blown Christianity. Zizek would say it is. And remember that in Lacan and Zizek, perversion is a disavowal of anything lacking. There's nothing lacking in the law. The person who is under this delusion takes it upon himself to complete or cover up what is lacking. And so the pervert seeks to establish the law. But remember that this is the law of sin and death. This is the law that imagines that through a transgressive relationship to the law, sinning so as to increase grace or merging law and sin into two sides of the same coin, you know, that each side is dependent upon the other, then you can establish the law. This is where you get a pervert. This is why 
you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. would like to see his wife having sex with someone else, or why any pervert, uh, what, what they're attempting to do in the transgression, though they don't have access to it, is to use the law as a means of pleasure, to access that underside of the law. And so the hysteric or feminine structure gets at, or there is a recognition of a delimitation of the law, that there is a recognition that there's something outside the law, or the pervert closes himself off to any questioning or uh, to the desire of the other, or if you want to think of it in terms of the bicameral mind, there's no question that that other voice is the voice of God. On the other hand, the hysteric will question the very structure. Maybe we're not simply describing, you know, in Jane's picture, this is a, a would be a literal biological development. In Paul, this isn't a biological development, but it's a religious understanding that develops. The hysteric then will question desire the way that Paul questions desire and the origins of desire. The question arises, am I a man or a woman? What am I? What is a woman? Or as in the implied question in Romans 7, why do I do what I do not want to do? What is the origin of desire? The hysteric questions this, the pervert doesn't. The pervert just does it. He does it, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Hysteric questioning, as opposed to unquestioning perversion, is the sight of a break that things are coming undone, that one in Lacanian language traverses the fantasy, and you're able to modify your subjectivity. And so the hysteric is precisely the one who is in the position that Paul is describing of discovering that the other, that you know, big O other, taken for God, the absolute law, is an imposter. And that it is not the law, but sinful desire that is at work. And so the pervert, on the other hand, closes off the question of the nature of the law. In this sense, what I'm actually describing here relates back then to radical evil, that one has fallen into taking an absolute nothing, a voice, a word, language, as an end in itself, or God itself. And so Paul, in raising the question, you know, is the law sin, he's describing this, he's, he's said this before, he, he said it in Romans 3, 5 to 8, this, let us do evil so that good may come from it, is the perverse structure it's the most succinct definition of the short circuit of the perverse position. You, you do transgress, you do evil, so that there may be good. Literally, this is why people are in mental hospitals. They would kill someone to be saved. They would sin so that they can get grace. They would transgress so that the law is established within them. Paul's entire effort is to break out of this vicious cycle in which prohibitive law and its transgression generate and support each other. And so it's originally Lacan's point that perversion does not refer so much to, you know, we often think of abnormal sexual practices. It may, it often does include that. But actually what Lacan is referring to is a structure that would explain those sexual practices in which the subject sides with the law in the attempt to escape its punishing effect and to partake of its surplus enjoyment. You know, Jerry Falwell Jr. wants to side with the law in watching his wife have sex with another man. The pervert, in some way, 
you know, take a Pee Wee Herman standing up that he exposing himself. Why do people do these things? It's a self-punishing thing, but in the self-punishment, in the transgression, there is a kind of surplus enjoyment. Beneath the denial of castration, then, you know, what you're actually denying is death, and both denials constitute a refusal of life's contingent and dependent condition by being in the law, with the law, establishing the law. The pervert is essentially refusing human contingencies, the difference between the sexes. And maybe that, that's the primary one, that it serves as a stand-in to provide phallic enjoyment. Not to the individual. Jerry Falwell can't have sex directly with his wife, but he provides phallic enjoyment to the subject behind the law that God is pleasuring himself in this perversion. That sounds like an ultimate perversity, and obviously it is, but I think that unconsciously this is what we're getting at, that there's a denial of sexual difference, a denial of death in what Zizek describes as giving oneself completely over to the symbolic order without regard for finitude and mortality. And so... Perversion is a defense against death and sexuality, against the threat of mortality, against the contingent imposition of sexual difference. The pervert lives in a kind of fantasy world. Think of cartoons, you know, in which one can survive any catastrophe, and it's all reduced to a game. In this way, Zizek says, the pervert's universe is the universe of pure symbolic order. The voice, the language, is the defining part. You know, it is the, the signifier's game running its course, unencumbered by human finitude, unencumbered by death. And so the pervert in identifying sin with the law, in denying death and sexuality, he really hasn't reached the question that Paul poses is the law sin. The presumption is that he has access to the power of the law through sin. While Paul demonstrates how this perverse position arises, well, he can only do this because he's no longer deceived as to the source of his own desire. He's traced this out. He understands the desire of the eye, the desire for the imaginary, that is a deception. That is the fundamental fantasy. That is the primordial lie. And the orientation to death, then, is the work of the real, the real of just the death drive, you know. It's this nothing erupting into life. Paul is not simply depicting the problem. He's doing that, but maybe he's already made a step. It's not a complete step of one who has died to the law, and my point here would be, it's not enough to name this problem. It's not enough to traverse the fantasy in Lacanian language. I think that Paul's dying to sin is more than traversing the fantasy. But I just wanted to make this step one in this, uh, to, to lay down. I've just made one point here, and that is that this law, this what we might call a radicalization of nothing, a radical, this is the, the radical evil, that that is the lie. 
that is going to be exposed. But I haven't come to the exposure yet. We'll come to that next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.